0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare slash weight loss. As moderator for tonight's broadcast. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. In early April 2020, I made a simple observation that the media viewed everything through the lens of whether it helped or hurt the reelection chances of Donald Trump. And I predicted that their doing so would lead their coverage of crucial events far off course in a way that would destroy them. They would self-destruct. The hand they attempted to play had long odds, and their card did not come up. They were all in. This election will happen amidst two crises, both of which the media has had a hand in creating and exacerbating. It has been a long time coming. For decades, they have picked the winners and losers. We call the media the fourth estate. It's not. It's the first estate. The Congress, the Supreme Court, and even the White House have always been below the media. They talk the country into and out of wars. They choose where and when to destroy political opponents by emphasizing one message over another, creating news out of the candidates, campaign ads and asking questions to generate responses that they can immediately turn into headlines. Television made this harder, but things could still be edited or things could still be buried rather than emphasized. The internet made it harder still. People could find information that countered the main story for the first time. But the old guard media beat this too. The loons on the fringe were indistinguishable from legitimate whistleblowers and analysts who defied the central narrative. The rise of social media and its merging with old guard media has made that impossible. We have reached the inevitable decentralization of media, as honest journalists can no longer look in the mirror they finally leave their organizations. Even a cursory glance at life outside the central narrative, one peek at the real world around you, can show you how wrong they are. They say coronavirus is crippling the country and that cities are not on fire. But we see and know the truth around us. This is why they're distorting the truth. The aim isn't to argue that reality will be improved when they are at the wheel. We know it will not be. Their aim is to argue that reality isn't real. This is straight out of Orwell. There is a real debate happening online about whether or not two plus two indeed equals four. When I make predictions, I don't do so because I think I can tell the future. I do it so you can watch what happens and fix a reference point. Viewing events through the lens of whether they help or hurt Donald Trump soon becomes insufficient media's diversion from objective reality can be falsified by looking at reality. It's a rare time in politics, particularly in America since we haven't been at war on our home soil in quite a long time when the media is forced to present something everyone can see with their own eyes. It's rare that the vast majority of the country is laser focused on what's happening, less consumed with work and social lives. This is a strange confluence. Usually big events are localized while life goes on. The media can write whatever narrative they please because too few people are paying attention. Anyone who disputes the narrative is easy to cast aside as a conspiracy theorist or agitator, or they're shouted down as if truth was democratic. It isn't. One person of a million can be correct. People have been burned at the stake for it. It can be hard to see this in the same way. It's hard to see yourself aging every day. You know, it's happening, but you don't see it until someone shows you a picture of yourself from months or years before. Then it's unmistakable. When you look back at the picture in full, you can see it for what it is. There's the story the media tells and whether or not it reflects the reality we interact with on a daily basis. Then there are the stories the media does not tell. It's important to know how things might have been different if they had chosen to tell a story other than the one they told. I want to remind you of the story the media has chosen not to tell because it does not advance their aims. Critical information that could have changed the real life situation we're witnessing had they chosen to play it straight. Let's look at the last six months. On January 31st, the progressive blog Vox tweeted, is this going to be a deadly pandemic? No. Vox, the blog that fancies itself an explainer of hard to parse truths, told us in the smug, pseudo sophisticated way only Vox can, that coronavirus was nothing to concern ourselves with. And that Trump banning travel from China to foreign citizens was racist. Calling it the China virus was racist too. They printed in big letters that the coronavirus was not a threat on the same day Trump banned travel. This is something that must be remembered. On March 24th, Vox tweeted, we have deleted a tweet from January 31st that no longer reflects the current reality of the coronavirus story. Congratulations. On the same day, on the off-sited medical research blog, Stat News, public health experts warned that the Chinese travel ban would hinder our coronavirus response. Anthony Fauci recently testified to the exact opposite. He agreed with Trump about the travel ban from China and then another for Europe and another for the UK and said they certainly saved countless lives. It is impossible for the central narrative to hold up to this. Fauci cannot simultaneously be the God of all knowledge and hero in the face of Trump opposition and testify to his agreement with the course Trump set the entire time. The two claims of the central narrative break down in the face of what Fauci testified. There is no other interpretation. If your retort is that he was only covering for Trump, afraid of his boss then you've freely admitted that Anthony Fauci is quite willing to distort the truth to achieve political goals. You may double down and say that he only lied because if he didn't, he would have been fired and the coronavirus response would have fallen apart. He was just doing his duty by staying. Fauci is a liar or he's not. The response here is only possible if you, like the media, assume Trump is lying or acting maliciously at all times. Then remember that Fauci was still saying the virus would be nothing to worry about at the end of February. The central narrative has no escape. Anthony Fauci is not, in fact, the nation's leading infectious disease expert. He is just a man who's had the same job, a political job, for the last 30 years. The same media in the same time frame called Tom Cotton, a conspiracy theorist for even suggesting that the virus didn't originate in a Wuhan wet market because of Chinese deception and delay and their dishonesty about coronavirus numbers. He theorized that the virus may have originated at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Cotton was sounding the alarm on the virus in mid January and was the one who convinced the president to halt travel from China for foreign citizens. He did this behind the scenes while the media was busy with impeachment and calling the travel ban racist. To support the claim of racism, they reported a rash of hate incidents against Asian Americans that must be occurring. They have not followed up on this claim. And there has been no rash of hate incidents. Cotton said, quote, since I first learned of the Wuhan coronavirus in mid January. Common sense has been my guide, not Chinese communist lies, not the models, not so-called public health experts, just common sense. Many elected leaders have also been guided by common sense. Others haven't. Cotton did more to help the country than any other individual by recognizing that threat early. The first people in the United States to take the virus seriously were not the media outlets, not Democrats in Congress, not Democratic governors or mayors. The first people to take coronavirus seriously, aside from a handful of scientists that did not include Anthony Fauci, were Tom Cotton and then Donald Trump. On February 27th, the New York Times published an article complaining about Cotton repeating his claim about the lab. The central narrative accepted Cotton as a conspiracy theorist and racist, even though he was the most right about the most critical issue of our time. And he was right about it before anyone and in the face of extraordinary opposition. Trump listened to him. Would Joe Biden? Would Kamala Harris? Why didn't the New York Times? Why didn't the New York Times pursue his theories in a serious way? Leaving open the possibility that he might have been right. Telling the truth could have helped prevent incredible suffering. In late February, it was clear that the coronavirus had a victim profile. It was killing more men than women, and it still roughly had a 60 to 40 split. In response were articles about how the virus was harder on women, since they comprised a big chunk of healthcare workers and caregivers. As yet, I'm unaware of any articles calling the virus sexist or any mention that the structure of society is systemically misinterested, believing that had we set things different, maybe we could have equality on coronavirus deaths, too. Men do not imagine themselves as victims of a society wide, unfalsifiable conspiracy to explain those instances when we pull the short straw. Men don't only die at a higher rate than women from coronavirus. They die earlier than women on average, and it isn't close. Life expectancy for men is a full five years fewer than for women. Five full years of life. Were this reversed, closing the death gap would be the world's number one human rights issue. But it's not, so it goes entirely unmentioned. On February 28th, media outlets and their social media sycophants reported that Trump called the virus a hoax. Over five months later, people still believe he did. It was printed everywhere and is still being used as an argument about how little Trump acted to mitigate the oncoming pandemic. This would be a reasonable narrative if not for one small obstacle. He did not call the virus a hoax. He called the media's coverage as it relates to him being unprepared a hoax. CNN's Jake Tapper allowed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to repeat this false claim on air. He later tweeted that he should have called it out, but chose not to because he said that while the president never called the virus a hoax, he did say the media coverage was a hoax and Jake can't let that stand. He reframed the issue as one that made him right while he was wrong. He provided cover for those who wanted to retain the emotional thrust of the lie, despite the facts. The truth played second fiddle, as it often does. I guess that's the problem with a politician who lies so often, Jake said. While I agree that Democrats are mischaracterizing what he said, What he did say was also false. So it's tough to justify taking the time for a fact check when it's not taking a stand defining the truth. This is Orwellian, a major network's lead anchor declared it was his job to define the truth for the audience. But if in his opinion, someone else lies, he's free to define the truth as he sees fit. Contrary to what Tapper said, it's easy to justify taking the time to correct AOC's false statement. The man she's lying about is the president of the United States, the country Jake is supposed to care about. He allowed a malicious untruth to stick for thousands, perhaps millions of people. Some people genuinely believe Trump thought the virus was a hoax. This is poison for the conversation. You do not have to believe Trump is honest at all to see what's wrong here. On February 29th, Anthony Fauci said, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything you are doing on a day by day basis. Right now, the risk is still low. This could be a major outbreak. I hope not. Or this is something that can be reasonably well controlled. I'm not sure he knows which one it is to this day. He certainly did nothing to aid in controlling it. Trump addressed the nation from the Oval Office on March 11th. People complained about the tone of Trump's voice and brought up pointless disagreements about semantics, as they nearly always do. But no one was clamoring for a lockdown, and clips of Fauci saying we weren't in danger were used for comfort. Remember where you were a week before Tom Hanks declared his sickness and the NBA halted their season. Your life was normal. You were paying little, if any, attention to the news. The South Carolina primary, where Biden took the lead over Bernie Sanders, happened on February 29th. Biden held a rally in Los Angeles on March 3rd, Super Tuesday. There were nearly 16 million votes cast in the Democratic races alone. And while many of those did not vote in person, if anyone chose not to because of coronavirus, I would be surprised. I voted in person. I stood in line as normal. No one was wearing masks or obsessively rubbing sanitizer into their hands. Biden had a good night. And at the rally, he slurred and bungled his way through a 12-minute speech without so much as mentioning coronavirus. On March 15th, without masks, Biden debated Bernie Sanders inside a small studio at CNN. Somehow everyone involved walked out alive. There, they discussed coronavirus. The first time it had been a point of discussion in one of the primary debates beyond just a passing mention. In what world are we to imagine any state or city would have locked down earlier? If Trump suggested it at the end of February, While Fauci was on television saying it wasn't a threat, Trump, like Cotton, would have been called a racist conspiracy theorist. If he suggested a lockdown, they'd have said he was an authoritarian dictator who wanted to trap people in their homes based on a conspiracy theory. Where are we to imagine Trump's blasé attitude about the virus came from? It's easy to say he was making up his own story except we already know that he was in contact with Anthony Fauci through all of these decisions as Fauci himself testified. Has Fauci ever come out to say that he was warning Trump and Trump wouldn't listen? There's no proof of this. Trump's actions along the timeline of events predate Fauci's. Should he have recommended masks? Fauci didn't do this until May. If Trump had acted and the virus proved unthreatening, Democrats would say Trump destroyed the economy and the public trust based on a conspiracy theory. On March 22nd, Democrats blocked the passage of the coronavirus relief bill to get unrelated agenda items passed, holding the country hostage for Elizabeth Warren's pet projects. Among them, expanded affordable housing and the cancellation of student debt, two issues entirely detached from the coronavirus response. Student loan repayment can already be delayed for extended periods. What coronavirus-related reason would there be to cancel college debt completely? She wanted to raise Social Security payouts by $200 per month and divert $10 billion from Trump's wall. The package had a price tag of $2.2 trillion, and she wanted to divert $10 billion as if the money couldn't have been found elsewhere. Of course, that's not the point. The point was to maintain her stature as a liberal hero and her viability as Joe Biden's running mate. To do this, she delayed the CARES Act and achieved none of her goals, aside from signaling to middle-class college kids, people who think they're poor, seniors, and Latin American immigrants, that she has their backs. There was no chance her desires would be met, which she surely knew. The media supported her in full. Her incompetent politics and total disregard for American citizens has cost her nothing, nor has the fact that she called herself Native American in order to advance her career, nor that her Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was a failure. And why bother? They like their story better. The Times headline read, Democrats again block action on $1.8 trillion stimulus. After getting complaints from their readers, they changed the headline to emergency economic rescue plan in limbo as Democrats block action. The subtle change softened the placement of blame on Democrats, exactly as their mob of editors on Twitter with names like at blue wave resist wanted. It made the framing less direct, or maybe they were just hoping that people wouldn't read the entire headline. Democrats held up the bill multiple times, taking away the word again in the first headline makes it seem as if Democrats stepped up to save the public as the evil Republicans were about to do them dirty on March 23rd, NBC news reported that an Arizona man, Gary Lenius, died after ingesting a cleaning product for aquariums and that his wife had fallen ill from the same. His wife had given him the lethal dose because she claimed she believed it was the miracle drug hydroxychloroquine that Trump had mentioned on TV. Media figures said Trump had blood on his hands and they chastised him for his loose talk. As one might imagine, they were nonplussed when the news came out that Gary's wife, Wanda, was a Democratic donor. Friends of the couple said she often berated Gary in public and they were known to have a tumultuous marriage. Wanda, for her part, had been charged with a prior incident of domestic abuse against her husband, but was found not guilty. As of last update, the police had not ruled out homicide and the investigation is ongoing. What started as Trump's loose talk killing people is now an open murder investigation and the media does not care. Of course, they have not followed up Florida beaches remained open bloggers at different popular blogging sites like refinery 29 and the New York times wrote in horror that irresponsible kids on spring break and Florida's reckless governor were surely going to kill us all. Florida didn't have a substantial outbreak until late May or early June. The strain of the virus was the same that afflicted New York. In fact, New York seeded the infection to the entire eastern half of the country. At the end of March, the media spent a day writing about how there was a risk of violent projectile respiratory droplets at a range of 27 feet. This, according to an associate professor at MIT. Naturally, USA Today framed the headline differently, writing, MIT Researcher. This is part of why people think masks are important. This is why people are still scared of you when you're 10 feet away. This is an incredibly destructive piece of the narrative, and it's widely accepted as true. Yet we also know that the virus is transmitted indoors through sustained contact. A bad belief enters the central narrative where it cannot be removed. People refuse to accept evidence that the bad belief indeed is wrong. And the falsehood frames every one of their political motives. If you disagree with them, you're happy to kill people for your own enjoyment or God forbid freedom. A binary is created between the lives of the old and infirmed and the enjoyment and freedom of a society. As if those don't matter as if they aren't the very point of living. So yes, as a matter of fact, my freedom is more important than your policy goal when it's based on terrible evidence and a purely misguided understanding of key elements of the pandemic. On April 2nd, in a CNN interview with Anderson Cooper and Sanjay Gupta, Anthony Fauci came out firmly in favor of nationwide lockdowns and wondered aloud why it hadn't happened yet. How different would the world be if Fauci had been less concerned about being America's doctor and more concerned about the potential impact of lockdown. It was not the administration's position that a national lockdown was in order. Fauci swayed the political narrative completely, and the administration was once again called irresponsible and anti-science. The public acceptance of this changed the course of history. That same day, the WHO released a report where they said, to date, there has been no documented asymptomatic transmission. We are still wearing masks to protect from that. Sure, you say, but that was early April, and we know so much more now. You would be wrong. There isn't a single decision-making variable about COVID that has substantially changed what was known before the lockdowns ever began. This is the reason why Sweden's Anders Tegnell made the choice he made and not the choice made by technocratic leftists who know nothing of the point of living and who are so enamored of their own imagined intelligence. They believe humans are capable of predicting human behavior. If only we can talk to a mathematician from Harvard who was educated with Chinese money. There is no element of the disease that has done more to scare people then their false assumptions about asymptomatic spread. Without that, the whole purpose of all of this goes away. Everything is premised on the notion that we can all be vectors of disease all the time, everywhere. We pacify this by performing incoherent, inconsistent behaviors to signal to one another that we are one of the safe ones because God knows you don't want to look like those dumb Trump supporters. We reimagine the point of living as a constant quest to prove one's belonging in the upper class. We glamorize our sad and boring lives. We pretend to be the nicest person in the world when strangers are around or when there are people to impress. We donate to causes for poor people of different skin colors to feel superior to people who don't agree with us. We make sure to have all the right opinions, which we know are right because, well, we have them. And we went to a very good college and someone else who went to a very good college said so. And everyone at the very good college was very smart and hardworking like us. What is it for? It's not to help your friends and neighbors. It's not to draw your family closer to you. It's not to signal your honesty to people who know you and can see your lying. It's not to improve yourself. It worsens you. The lie is a pernicious one. You signal to those close to you that you're constantly in search of better friends. It is a beautiful thing to perform charity and give to worthwhile causes for people who have done well enough to be able. Many find a cause to care about and make a difference in the world. After making sure your family and friends are secure, it's the most important thing the wealthy can do with their money. These people should be honored. That's not the same as flying around the world on a private jet to attend climate charities, to funnel tax-free money into progressive political causes, and put support behind progressive political candidates in the hope of installing socialism so that people who went to very good colleges can finally control the world. There is no honor in this. You're paying to propagandize your fellow Americans, of whom you know none, of whom you want to know none that you do this while shunning and betraying those close to you speaks to something deeply disturbed inside you. This is how you tell those around you that you're in search of better friends, friends who also went to very good colleges or celebrities. They just have to be better. The media raged about the upcoming Wisconsin primaries continuing as scheduled with in-person voting on April 7th. This is when the push for mail-in balloting began. The debate rages on nearly five months later. The massive outbreak after the Wisconsin primary is something very few people have even heard of. That's because it didn't happen. Around this time, Trump threatened to cut funding and pull out of the wholly corrupted WHO. Then he did. This has resulted in no effect whatsoever on the American handling of the coronavirus. No one has complained since the decision was finalized. If it was a story, we would hear about it every day. There's no story. The Times itself had noted that Tidros Adhanom, the director general of the WHO was accused of covering up pandemics prior to being named to his position. The 2017 headline read Candidate to Lead the WHO Accused of Covering Up Epidemics. The WHO covered up the coronavirus pandemic for months. We know that now. They did it for China. It's not wrong to wonder if this is why. Tedros was named in the first place. We were told that Trump pulling America out of the WHO was irresponsible. We were told that pulling the funding would put people in poor third world countries in immediate danger. If it has, our media outlets have not cared enough to tell us. On April 15th, Dr. Fauci gave his stamp of approval to people going on Tinder dates. If you're willing to take the risk, and, you know, everybody has their own tolerance for risk, you could figure out if you want to meet. If you want to go a little bit more intimate, well, then that's your choice regarding a risk. That is a direct quote. This, in the midst of constant browbeating about social distancing and not seeing people you don't know. An article appeared in the New York Post But virtually no one else paid attention to the fact that Fauci thought sex with strangers was a matter of personal choice while forcing us to stay six feet apart while outside in the sun was only prudent. The media never put a moment's focus on food lines around the country, Sonoma, California, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, countless other cities cars stretching out for miles to get handed bags of groceries. Why? In mid-April, Carl Hennigan, professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford and a National Health Services urgent care doctor, claimed the virus had peaked and lockdowns should be lifted as they'd already caused more harm than the virus possibly could. That was over four months ago. This got no coverage, by American media outlets, the public health officials allowed into the mainstream conversation or as Eric Weinstein calls it, the gated institutional narrative failed to even consider the possibility. Aside from reporting spikes deaths from the virus in the northeastern United States peaked on April 9th, which means the infections occurred before lockdowns even went into place. Hennigan was largely correct. There has been no point where deaths have even approached the same level in the four months since. On April 22nd, Gavin Newsom announced a review of all influenza-like illness deaths across the state of California through the beginning of December 2019. This is because the first coronavirus death in America occurred in Santa Clara County on February 6th, 22 days prior to what they believed had been the first American coronavirus death. One occurred there on February 17th as well. The woman who died in Santa Clara hadn't traveled and was not around anyone who had. This means at least one other person with whom she'd had sustained contact had been infected prior. But unless the contact tracing failed, it would require two or more. She died at home and had not been tested prior. The fact that she never went to the hospital means she likely died of something other than coronavirus. Terribly sick people who were already in poor health don't generally decide to stay home with a horrendous, deteriorating illness. Based on the standard lag of 25 to 40 days from infection to death, she was infected in at least early January and quite possibly late December 2019. There was little coverage of Gavin's ordered review. Unless you watched it live, you would not have known anything about this. There's been very little print coverage, and months later, there's been no update. This is because the results of this review have been tied up in California state bureaucracy. The information in this review couldn't be more important. It's hard to think of any single piece of information that would change our understanding of coronavirus more drastically. Even finding out the first case was in early December would mean we lived with the virus in America for four plus months prior to the first hint of lockdown. It would change every epidemiological model immediately. Depending on how maturely the conversation was presented, getting this single bit of information has the potential to open the country immediately without restriction, but we can't get it. For the Chinese New Year, there were an estimated 3 billion trips to and from and within China for the celebration, which ran from January 25th through the middle of February. Bloomberg reported on this unrelated to the virus in January. There has been virtually no coverage of the Chinese New Year's effect on coronavirus spread by any media outlet. Why? Because it would be racist to find out whether or not That almost unbelievable amount of travel might have had something to do with the viral spread. The only mentions of the Chinese New Year that even entered the conversation, albeit briefly, were from public officials in New York and San Francisco, encouraging people to go out and celebrate, saying there was no need to worry about the coronavirus, which would be racist. And besides, everyone knows it's not going to be a big deal. And Trump should have never shut down travel from China. In late April, a video of the Illinois director of public health, Dr. Ezekiel, went semi viral. In the video, she described the different circumstances where a death would be classified as a COVID death. She included those who are already in hospice, the place you go to die, who had been tested for COVID, or were deemed probable COVID. No one cared. The media took to Twitter to reprimand anyone who would distinguish between with COVID and from COVID. I mean, who cares, right? Medical providers received government checks to keep their facilities solvent after blue state governors overestimated their bed needs tenfold, killing the hospital's billable business and forcing them to furlough healthcare workers. Robert Redfield, director of the CDC, testified to Congress that he thought it was likely That medical providers were marking hospitalizations and deaths as COVID to get money from the relief package. And of course they were. Keep this possibility in mind. On April 23rd, at one of his daily coronavirus press briefings, Trump repeated some of the potential treatments for the disease. He mused about disinfectants and ultraviolet light, and then suggested injecting something like that into the body to kill the virus. The media exploded with derision, once again calling Trump dangerous. They ran reports about how he encouraged drinking or injecting bleach. They reported on how increased calls to poison control hotlines indicated his very stupid supporters were following his advice in drinking bleach. Of course, on further review, the calls to poison control centers had spiked weeks prior as people across the country were going out of their minds, disinfecting everything in sight. Further review isn't needed for the claim about injecting ultraviolet light. Injectable ultraviolet light is a therapy that has been researched for years. A Cedars-Cyanide treatment called Heal Light was currently being tested on coronavirus. People still joke about this. They're very informed, very liberal friends think this joke is a riot. It's unsurprising that people so humorless will happily accept the existence of 57 unique gender identities. That same day, the New York Times published a report about 10,700 cases from February that had gone unreported. A spread that wide at that date should have shocked the world. It was ignored and quickly forgotten. As the nation performed a collective freakout over Trump's insane solutions to the coronavirus, Gilead reported that its burgeoning miracle cure, remdesivir, was achieving great success in their studies. That day, Gilead's stock hit its highest price in nearly five years. The media also reported that Donald Trump owned stock in hydroxychloroquine. To their dismay, hydroxychloroquine is a generic drug and Trump owns a tiny portion of a related company in a mutual fund. The value of Trump's stake is estimated, according to PolitiFact, to be worth between $100 and $1,500. The same day, April 29th, Amanda Mull, a woke millennial blogger at The Atlantic, published an article titled An Experiment in Human Sacrifice, about how her home state of Georgia, was going to kill all of its residents by opening businesses too early. Georgia has now been open for three and a half months. And there have been zero spikes in death to warrant even the concern necessary to close businesses, much less declare the decision tantamount to genocide. Georgia ranks 16th in the nation for deaths per hundred thousand, 11 of the 15 places higher on that list than Georgia are run by Democrats. Later that day, CNN published a story on their website about how a man won the Powerball lottery twice on the same day after playing the same numbers for 30 years. They somehow didn't realize that the only way to do that is to buy two tickets and that there is only one set of winning lottery numbers. And the fact that he'd played them for 30 years straight meant there was no other way for this to be possible. This doesn't even require rootedness. This only requires eight seconds of thought or exactly as long as it takes to go. Wow. That's really, wait a second. Oh, duh. Days later, sociologist and physician Nicholas Christakis, tweeted out a Danish study of nearly 10,000 blood samples that showed the infection fatality rate of COVID to be around 0.1%, indicating that the virus was capable of killing one out of 1,000 people who contracted it. Christakis was once named among time's most influential hundred people in the world. He was twice named to foreign policy magazines list of top thinkers in the world the study went largely ignored. To my knowledge, no reporter has asked Anthony Fauci what he believes the IFR to be. They haven't even inquired as to whether his paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, where he said the IFR would be considerably less than 1%, is still something he believes. Could it be as low as 0.1%? Of course it could. Even though the median age of death is over 80, and even though... The coronavirus is not capable of killing virtually any children. The media has never mentioned it. And why not? Wouldn't a 0.1% IFR mean we did all this for nothing? Why, yes, it would. This is right around the time when the media was doing everything it could to avoid covering the sexual assault charges leveled against Joe Biden by Tara Reid, who claims Biden penetrated her with his fingers when she worked in his Senate office in 1993. Her story was corroborated, at least circumstantially, in a call that was placed to Larry King live at the time of the incident. The media mostly passed on the story altogether. When they did cover it, they painted Reid as a psychologically unstable and unreliable accuser. Think pieces flooded the internet claiming that hashtag believe women wasn't really about believing all women and that regardless, it didn't mean believe it only meant that allegations should be taken seriously as if there exists a world where these allegations aren't taken seriously until proven false. Nothing could do more to make people not believe women than flimsy politically convenient morals when it comes to accusing men of the worst crimes. Soon after, very reputable American reporters pronounced North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un dead before backtracking, saying that he was only in a coma, then saying he's dead again, and now forgetting the whole thing since Kim is still alive and not in a coma. Perhaps he died and was reanimated the same way they've done with Joe Biden's corpse. On May 1st, Gavin Newsom announced the closure of all California parks and beaches after pictures online showed crowds gathered on the sand in Orange County. He didn't want to look like the sort of irresponsible fool Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was purported to be, even though there was no negative impact of DeSantis leaving beaches open, aside from the New York bloggers complaining about the danger while their hipster friends gathered in New York City parks. The national media didn't bother questioning whether or not Gavin was following the science. On May 2nd, Fox's John Roberts tweeted that a senior intelligence official confirmed to him that there was wide agreement among the 17 intelligence agencies that the virus originated in a Wuhan lab. Despite countless very serious articles from Vox and other blogs to the contrary, there is very legitimate belief among intelligence and scientists that it did. The New York Times, when it cared about journalistic integrity and defending the country it ostensibly served, would have been reporting on this constantly. Few stories could have a larger impact on world affairs than whether or not China was directly responsible for the worldwide pandemic and their delay in telling the world. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced an intelligence assessment shortly after that said China intentionally concealed the severity of the coronavirus in order to hoard medical supplies. One might describe that as an act of war if one was not concerned about being called racist by people defending the Chinese Communist Party, the same Chinese Communist Party currently imprisoning one million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps. The same day, Nobel laureate Michael Levitt, a biophysicist and professor of structural biology at Stanford, appeared on a web show called Lockdown TV, published by the online magazine Unheard. He discussed how, in location after location, the viral spread was never hitting the exponential growth predicted in models, and that its death rate was consistently low. He believes it to be around 0.04%, which means four out of every 10,000 infected people could possibly die. That's in each place. The virus spread quickly, over the course of two weeks, and then tapered away to nothing. This pattern still remains in every location with an outbreak, regardless of mitigation. He questioned the purpose of lockdown, noting that in location after location, the spike in cases had stopped prior to any possibility of that cessation being due to lockdown or social distancing. He mused that epidemiologists believe their job to be the creation of enough fear to get the public to act in a certain way. As if the general population is composed of childlike invalids, incapable of understanding big words and emotionally unable to handle being spoken to like a responsible adult. Also that day, omnipresent TV talking head, Scott Gottlieb, who used to be commissioner of the food and drug administration, the agency resisting the use of hydroxychloroquine in favor of other more expensive drugs, tweeted that the threshold for herd immunity was likely much lower than expected. It is now likely that we have reached that point in every place there was an outbreak, but that's probably not worth finding out. Not when we can make vaccines and sell brand name drugs. NBC reported that a study of cell phone data in Wuhan last October indicated that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was mysteriously closed for days. But who cares? Everyone smart knows that Tom Cotton is still a conspiracy theorist. CNN published a story about an analysis done by a company called Wellbeing Trust, indicating that 75,000 Americans could die from drug or alcohol overdose or suicide as a result of the lockdowns. You'd have to think at least a few of those people having their lives cut short by government imposed cruelty might have had more time left on their clocks than those in hospice. But to think this means you're literally killing someone's grandma. Around this time, it was revealed that none of the 53 people interviewed in private by Adam Schiff had ever presented or even claimed to have evidence that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. This is not what Schiff presented to America. Indeed, it was a key thrust of the impeachment narrative. The media collectively shrugged. What use is discussing a coordinated soft coup against the president of the United States when you personally are literally killing someone's grandmother? Remember? On May 3rd, in the International Journal of Microbial Agents, a pre-proof study was published showing that coronavirus was widespread in France in December of 2019. That was naturally unworthy of mention. These are the sorts of things that could force the country to reopen or stop the big pharma vaccine machine from churning. This is when the Telegraph reported that disgraceful epidemiologist, Neil Ferguson, author of the Imperial college London study that was used to shut down the known world had been traversing London to visit his girlfriend, herself married to someone else, for illicit lovemaking sessions while his country, because of his shoddy work, was locked indoors and shamed from meeting anyone. Ferguson estimated 500,000 deaths in the UK. Their death toll has leveled off around 46,000. The cases have been in constant decline since peaking on April 12th, three and a half months ago. Ferguson was off by a factor of 10. Overestimating deaths by a factor of 10 horrifying the country is actually a fairly solid performance for him. His 2001 work on foot and mouth disease was off by a factor of 749. The UK has still not returned to normal. Media outlets breathlessly reported that the virus had mutated into a more contagious form. They did not mention that when viruses do that, it's because they need to continue to find new hosts rather than kill them all. Generally, if they become more contagious, they're less deadly. In early May, the media was consumed with reports from South Korea that indicated it was possible for people who recover from COVID and pass the virus to fail to create antibodies and get infected a second time. This finding was shared with a sizable portion of horror. It was also the sort of finding that should be doubted as it contradicts how the body reacts to a wide array of viruses. A couple weeks later, a study of these cases was done and found that the reports of multiple infections were due to false positives in the second test. This debunking of prior horror was mostly ignored. Now and then a report pops up of someone having the disease twice. This fear persists, but there's no proof as yet of this being confirmed, not even once. People have, however, read confused, scary articles about COVID returning when the study cited was showing that COVID symptoms have returned. In no way does that constitute a reinfection. I imagine we have all had colds we thought were over that got stronger or lasted three more weeks. If you haven't had that experience, Congratulations, I guess, for your uniqueness. Our old guard media continues to run similar stories, even now in the middle of August. The disease has been in the world for at least eight months and a reinfection has not occurred a single time. As Professor Francois Ballou, director of the Genetics Institute at University College London noted, if three months was all your immunity lasted, We'd have seen countless people reinfected by now. And of course, that has not happened. This is not something which can be answered by the tired refrain, but it was a new disease we didn't know. This has been true and known for months at minimum. Throughout the U.S., people began coming out to protest lockdowns, mostly in small groups, always outdoors, sometimes armed, never violent. These lockdowns were covered quite extensively, mostly because they were racist, even though they weren't. That's just what you say when it's mostly white people doing something you don't like. Gretchen Whitmer, idiot governor of Michigan, told her residents that she would punish them with extra time on lockdown if they didn't stop protesting. How's that for the freedom of protest? She felt that the protests were a bad look for her while she was being vetted to be in the top 20 for Joe Biden's female running mate. She banned her people from buying seeds or going to their country homes. Her husband tried to take the boat out, saying it was okay because he was married to the governor. No one really cared. She also put thousands of sick people into nursing homes. But then again, she gave the Democratic response to Trump's State of the Union and, well, the woman thing. So she's untouchable. Around this time, numbers began emerging that broke out nursing home deaths and long-term deaths from the total, showing them to be around and often above 50% of total deaths. Phil Kirpin has done excellent work on this. Those figures remain true. More than half of the deaths in the United States recorded as with or from coronavirus or probable COVID were incurred by people already under round-the-clock care in the place they went to live out their final days. In one of his totally serious and very presidential daily briefings, Andrew Cuomo, the ridiculous buffoon governor of New York, divulged a shocking statistic showing that a full two-thirds of infections in New York were coming from inside the home, like an 80s horror movie. He expressed his normal befuddlement, which is his only other default attitude aside from entirely unearned brash cockiness. On May 10th, Der Spiegel, published a report that President Xi of China personally requested the WHO hold back information about human-to-human transmission and delay the global response by four to six weeks. Our esteemed media did not care much for this story. The Daily Mail UK and the New York Post are, to my knowledge, the only ones who mentioned it. On Twitter, none other than Sean Lennon, no conservative, was apoplectic over the fact that he had to read about it in a tabloid everyone should be. Everyone isn't. One should wonder whether Anthony Fauci, God of knowledge, was simply believing everything the WHO said and relaying that information to the American people. Perhaps that's why he failed to take the virus seriously for months. Around this time, reports about the wholly predictable spike in suicides, drug overdoses, drug and alcohol abuse and domestic abuse started. This was given small notice in the New York Times and largely forgotten. Meanwhile, it's estimated based on historical unemployment trends that we could be looking at tens of thousands of suicides brought on by lockdowns. We need to stop pretending lockdown isn't the greatest moral, political, and scientific abomination in human history. It is. It will be better to accept now rather than later. This was all indeed for nothing. Understanding that is how to move on, but also understand that you were betrayed by the people giving you information, be they in your personal life on social media or in legacy media. The wall street journal published an article on the 50% of Americans who are making more money from coronavirus relief than they earn at their jobs. The only people who got mad at this horrible result are socialists. Even the normal left wouldn't touch this one, but we always have the socialists. They believe that Americans should be paid this amount to stay at home all the time, however long COVID lasts or however long the country lasts. If it were up to them, it wouldn't be long. This isn't partisan hackery. The notion that people should have a living wage even if they refuse to work was included in the original Green New Deal summary. What could be more destructive to human dignity, to the sources of meaning in life, Than to tell people they're probably better off staying home to immerse themselves in alternate universes on screen. Andrew Cuomo announced that New York had done all it needed to and could focus on carefully reopening. This was cheered and celebrated, even though Andrew Cuomo achieved poorer results than any official in the entire world, aside from Anthony Fauci and Phil Murphy, governor of neighboring New Jersey who got Andrew's sloppy seconds. This is while other states were being called killers for daring to do the same or for not having lockdown to begin with. Economists at the University of Chicago estimated that 42% of the American job loss due to lockdown would result in permanent job loss. Andy Slavitt, the moronic fool who served in the Obama administration, running Medicare and Medicaid services, continued to recommend lockdowns into late July. Ohio's hospitalizations peaked at 1,200 in one week. Their hospitalizations also peaked at 1,200 in February for the flu. But why would that matter, right? If no one had ever named COVID, it's possible Those 1200 hospitalizations may have been marked as flu and no one would have known the difference. On May 13th, Yahoo News published an article about a study where hydroxychloroquine had been used to treat children for COVID. The media continued to call Trump a dangerous conspiracy theorist, pushing quack treatments while real doctors felt comfortable enough with the treatment to administer it to children. Articles emerged claiming children were being hospitalized and dying for Kawasaki-like illness as a result of COVID. The narrative quickly disappeared and has not emerged. Why? Because they were wrong, of course. The USA Today and FactCheck.org both found that hospitals were able to receive money from the CARES Act funds for marking down cases of covid People who suggested that medical providers were incentivized to do this and probably encouraged by governors who bankrupted many of them by shutting down their non-COVID services and that the numbers might well be inflated because of it were called conspiracy theorists. We're finding completely distorted numbers constantly coming in around the country, constantly being corrected, only ever in one direction. Why should anyone believe this is not occurring, especially when we know as an admitted truth, that anything that is even considered probable COVID without a test is counted as a positive case. Recall Redfield's testimony. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell estimated a full 40% of people who earn under $40,000 per year had lost their jobs. 40%. Celebrity influencers were paid by the state of California for posting on Instagram, about the importance of face masks. A study of the coronavirus infection fatality rate found it to be 0.1%, indicating the virus was capable of killing one in 1,000 people, and far less than that if the infected person was under 50 years old. Every lockdown skeptic knew this. The media didn't care. And American media actually interested in the good of America would be all over this great news, and their experts would be discussing whether or not it was true. They would be interviewing doctors and framing the issue so that people could understand. The Atlantic published an article about the failure in case reporting that occurred as a result of mixing positive PCR tests with positive antibody tests, obscuring the lines between who currently has symptoms and could potentially be a vector for spread and who previously had the virus and is not a vector for spread. That is if the test was taken in the first few days after contracting the virus. PCR tests can be positive up to 83 days after infection, meaning viral shedding could have stopped more than two months prior. This completely perverts the understanding of how the virus is operating. When this point is raised, people act as if the article was from Infowars and not the Atlantic, as if they published it accidentally, like they did with Amanda Mull's diatribe on human sacrifice in Georgia. Andrew Cuomo, a recipient of big donations from nursing homes in New York in his 2018 campaign, quietly provided legal immunity for the operators of these nursing homes. An article from Foreign Policy magazine on May 12th reported that a leaked Chinese virus database showed an additional 230 cities affected and at least an additional 640,000 updates. This is yet another fact that would and should shift epidemiology models a great deal. Did it? Who cares? Does anyone know this? Lockdown skeptics do. A study at NYU found that giving patients in the early stages of COVID a combination of hydroxychloroquine, zinc sulfate, and azithromycin made them 44% less likely to die. That was May 14th. In August, the media is still pretending. Hydroxychloroquine couldn't have saved lives and that they are just following the science. There is legitimate competing information. A more recent study showed no positive effects from treatment with hydroxychloroquine. Nonetheless, there are plenty of doctors who swear by it and they don't all believe in demons or crystals. The same day, a nervous media covered the irresponsible country of Sweden and their refusal to mandate masks. Yeah, stupid Sweden didn't lock down at all and ended up in the middle of the pack, outperforming places that did stupid, ignorant Sweden. Always wanting to kill the happiest people in the world right now. Swedish health officials stated. There is no proof that masks give any additional greater protection in public spaces. The Seattle Times reported about two Washington state residents who tested positive for coronavirus antibodies after being sick in December. Again, this should change the entire narrative about the virus. All lockdown skeptics know this. Does anyone else? Obviously not. Also on May 14th, Cell Press published a peer-reviewed paper Published four weeks earlier as a preprint, stating that 40 to 60 percent of the population already had T cell immunity to COVID 19 due to having been infected by prior coronaviruses, also known as common colds. This is the sort of information that should stop all conversation. This fact alone could mean that the virus quickly spreads through the entire community and kills whoever it can and then is gone. This is the sort of thing that could render a vaccine utterly useless. It's strange that no one cared to report on it. Colorado Governor Jared Polis announced that the death counts in his state were being misreported as deaths due to causes clearly not coronavirus were still being included in the reported numbers. People shrugged. On May 16th, the New York post reported on how the country reacted during the pandemic of 1969 that killed hundred thousand people in the United States. They attended Woodstock. Some people laugh about how quaint this sounds. It should make you cry to see what the fortitude of your peers has become an LA County serology study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, showed that COVID infections were likely 20 to 45 times as high as the case count showed. This is the sort of thing everyone in the country would know if our media had not betrayed us. The Palm Beach Post published a story about how 11 people in Delray Beach, Florida, were very likely infected with the virus in November 2019. It bears repeating... We lived with the virus and without mitigation for over four months. France reported a cluster of cases in Colmar from November 16, 2019, before the official reports even place it in China. This was published in Le Figaro. NBC picked up the story. No one else seemed to think this was an important part of the narrative. When I say people are not understanding how the disease operates, this is exactly what I mean. It is impossible to create a clear understanding if you think the virus arrived in March 2020. Phil Kirpin noticed that Pennsylvania had reported more deaths with COVID for people over 100 years old than under 45, more deaths over 95 than under 60, and more deaths over 85 than under 80. The difference for infection fatality rate in the oldest Americans is staggering. For everyone else, it's almost nothing, especially with no comorbidities. This news arrived to zero fanfare and was not added to the common understanding. The CDC did us the favor of finally disclosing that the virus didn't often spread from contact with surfaces. This was not added into the central narrative. Everyone just stopped discussing surface transmission, and months later... Diluted weaklings are still spraying everything. Denmark's State Serum Institute reported that their initial opening stages did not affect viral spread as they expected and sped opening further along. This would be fantastic news and enhance our understanding about so-called spikes from reopening if only anyone cared. Massachusetts returned numbers indicating minimal risk to anyone under 60 years old and that 86% of its workforce was under 60. They declined to immediately reopen. People still don't understand the age factors fully, but do know that you, personally, are killing grandma, you vicious ghoul. People noticed that COVID's curve mapped almost exactly onto the 1999-2000 flu season curve. No one noticed them noticing. Hundreds of doctors signed an open letter stating that the negative consequences of lockdown were assuredly outweighing any possible benefit, if there was, in fact, any benefit at all. The BBC wrote that 36,000 lives could have been saved if the U.S. had locked down earlier. They based this figure on the same models that had been spectacularly wrong at every point. They also act as if Fauci was pleading publicly to lock down in February and Trump refused. That never happened. At that time, Fauci was saying the virus did not pose a threat on national television. Reports emerged of people dying for lack of care on all sorts of illnesses due to hospitals refusing to administer non-COVID health care. Where was this primarily a problem? Why? Blue states, of course. On May 21st, UnHerd's Lockdown TV hosted a discussion with Oxford professor of theoretical epidemiology, Sunetra Gupta. Gupta's talk confirmed a great many of the pieces I had noted were missing from the coronavirus narrative. The American media ignored this well-credentialed epidemiologist from one of the world's most respected universities, an Indian woman, no less. Her story did not fit the central narrative, and she was barred from the common conversation. A study from Brookings estimated that opioid deaths would increase 3.6% for every 1% rise in unemployment. The 20% rise indicated a 59% rise in potential opioid deaths as a result of lockdowns. Based on last year's opioid death toll of 67,000, we could then expect 106,530 deaths from opioids this year. That's nearly 40,000 Americans none of them nearing their life's end in nursing homes and hospice. An article in Forbes reported that a letter signed by 600 doctors was delivered to Donald Trump. The letter called lockdowns a, quote, mass casualty incident that carried, quote, exponentially growing negative health consequences. At the end of March, I was saying this to everyone who'd listen. It could never have been another way. You can't just press pause on people's lives. The evening of May 21st, Chris Cuomo on his primetime CNN show chided his brother for having a big nose by using a prop, a giant Q-tip. Gosh, that's funny, Chris. Happy joke time with your brother, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo oversaw the world's single worst coronavirus response. Stockholm, Sweden's densest city, outperformed New York State, the entire state, including the huge rural parts, by a Nordic mile, which I think is the same as an American mile, or would be if they didn't use kilometers, which I'm almost sure they use. Incidentally, Chris Cuomo boldly broadcasted his way through his own COVID affliction. On the 14th day, he rose from the grave, a.k.a. basement, and emerged into the kitchen. That's how we know it's spring. He maintains that he stayed in the basement for 14 days. There was a dramatic reuniting with his wife and kids. Before his illness, Chris also got into a verbal altercation with a man riding a bicycle because the man hectored him about social distancing violations. He now lectures America nightly about social distancing violations. On May 22nd, it was reported that the head of the Norwegian Institute of Public Health believed lockdowns were a mistake and that they could have beaten the virus without them. This was reported a few days later by The Spectator, The Telegraph, and the BBC. If it was reported at all in American media, both Google and I missed it. The same day, Spiked Online quoted Yoram Lass, the former head of Israel's health ministry, discussing lockdowns, saying, quote, Nothing can justify this destruction of people's lives. Gavin Newsom, as always, fretted about masks last said that the virus comes and goes within a month. This pattern has repeated in every region with an outbreak. He blamed the news media for filling people's heads with fear and anxiety, making it impossible for them to look at real data. He said they had brainwashed an entire population. More people will die from the measures than from the virus, he said. On May 24th, in a macabre celebration of achieving 100,000 deaths, the New York Times decided to list the names of the dead on the front page of their very serious content app slash blog slash newspaper. The sixth name on their front page list died from murder with COVID. They issued a correction but failed to say why. Why indeed? That same day, Tom Inglesby, the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, predicted that millions could die if businesses were ordered to reopen. Three months prior, the same man tweeted that there was serious concern that large-scale quarantining would not only be ineffective, but could have serious downside consequences. I wonder what changed. I imagine we'll find Johns Hopkins received a whole lot of money for their very important work. Around this time, China took control of Hong Kong and ignited a skirmish along their Indian border. It was mostly peaceful. Around this time, New York was allowing its residents to enjoy New York's famed beaches but not swim in the water, as they were just, of course, following the science. California chose a different approach, allowing residents to swim in the water but not hang out on beaches. They were just following the exact same science. The New York Times covered protests by the residents of Hong Kong as a threat to social distancing rather than a final resistance to the Chinese Communist Party's destruction of their society. Vice wrote about how it might be wise to exclude friends who broke social confinement rules from Zoom hangouts. I didn't bother reading this article because why would anyone? but I have to assume this recommendation was following some science as well. A photo went viral of a masked priest squirting holy water from a toy gun at babies to baptize them. It was a gag photo and a good one. Proof that some science and religion are compatible. Lyman stone an economist and demographer noted that New York's infections peaked sometime between March 13th and 18th before New York's lockdown even started. The CDC's own guidance on lockdowns indicates that any effectiveness lockdown might have as a mitigation strategy would be nullified if the virus had infected over 1% of the population before lockdown was imposed. This was quite obviously true. Andrew Cuomo takes credit for eliminating the virus in New York state, even though the virus was going away before he ever acted. Sweden reported that over 70% of its deaths with coronavirus came from long-term care homes. They have noted that the only change they would have made in their response would have been to better protect these facilities and the people in them. As of May 26th, only 59 Swedes under 50 years old had died with the virus. The May 26th coronavirus update from the CDC estimated COVID's case fatality rate at 0.4% overall. That's four out of 1000 people with reported cases. This indicates that the infection fatality rate, the number of people who would die if they were infected, was considerably less than 0.1%, since the number of true infections is far higher than reported cases. If the CDC is correct, fewer than one of every thousand people to contract the virus could potentially die. If you didn't hear about this report, it's because the people you trust to inform you failed. Also on May 26th, the WHO reported that they believed a second wave of covid was increasingly unlikely. That same day, Bloomberg published an article saying that in Italy, 96 percent of the deaths with coronavirus were caused by something else. Neither fact became part of the central narrative. Around this time, China warned Australia that it must distance itself from the United States as Australia, part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership, aligned with the assessment that the virus originated in the Wuhan lab. Around this time, China sent two aircraft carriers toward Taiwan. A study was conducted exposing asymptomatic carriers to healthy people. Out of 455 people in the study, zero Contracted the virus. Dr. James Todaro noted that on March 10th, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced the state's first coronavirus cases in the hours following the closing of polls in the Michigan primary. This helped to allow Joe Biden to clinch the nomination in the state's primary election. On May 22nd, she announced that lockdowns would extend into the summer. This, in accordance with, we must assume, the science. Soon after, Whitmer was eliminated from vice presidential contention. KDKA in Pittsburgh reported that the Allegheny Health Network and Highmark were laying off hundreds of healthcare employees due to lack of business during lockdown. Pennsylvania has a Democrat in the governor's office. Sweden, Finland, Austria, and Norway, none of them COVID horror stories believe proper social distance is one meter. That's roughly half the distance of our guidance. Remember, Fauci is really just guessing and playing a risk management game very poorly. Yahoo News reported concern in the UK that a vaccine would be unsuccessful because the UK was running out of coronavirus cases. Whoops. Around this time, Instagram began flagging posts about COVID in case they contained, quote, misinformation. Misinformation is now characterized as anything that conflicts with the central narrative. A headline ran in Politico about how the nightmare scenario that Democrats were dreading was the incredible economic numbers that reopening the country would create. A former top economic advisor to President Obama said, quote, we are about to see the best economic data we've seen in the history of this country. End quote. He must have been lying, right? Also on May 26th, George Floyd died under the knee of Derek Chauvin. A few days later, the country exploded. Minnesota was set aflame as their very peaceful protests intensified and spread. The media reported this as acceptable recompense for the death of a black man at the hands of a white officer. A study from the medical journal, The Lancet, showing hydroxychloroquine to be dangerous was retracted. The data company that created the basis for the study, a textbook marketing company, was revealed to have essentially made up their data from nothing. That company, Surgisphere, is no longer in operation, yet people still believe hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. Dr. Fauci, Andrew Cuomo, and others castigated the country over masks, saying that they were a symbol, a sign of respect between people. I don't know how the science measures respect, but I know how mafia bosses do it. They judge how well people beneath them obey. Twitter personalities relentlessly posted about the coronavirus death toll, comparing it to a number of 9-11s, comparing it to Vietnam and comparing it to the crowds that would fill college football's largest stadiums. Just don't ever compare it to the flu unless you personally see it fit to execute my loved ones. San Francisco's mayor, London Breed, commanded her residents to wear a mask anytime they might be within 30 feet of another person, even outside. This was following, presumably, some science somewhere on may 27th recode and vox published an article about how tech billionaires would be organizing to provide a boost to joe biden to help him catch up with president trump abc reported on the 21 states that had opened on may 4th or earlier none showed substantial rises in hospitalizations or deaths some southern states did get hit weeks later but there's no indication this was caused by reopening eight of these states never issued stay at home orders in the first place. That night, the city of Minneapolis reported concerns over intentionally cut gas lines and buildings with explosive materials inside, encouraging residents nearby to flee. If anything were to go wrong, very helpful. Otherwise they may have stuck around inside the blast radius. On May 28th, the New York Times issued a retraction of a story that went viral about an ER doctor who had died of coronavirus. It simply didn't happen. Celebrities tweeted that they would happily fund the legal fees of those arrested for rioting. The New York Times reported that CNN's president, Jeff Zucker, was considering a run for mayor of New York City. That's right. The man who has turned his network into a veritable circus freak show of Trump derangement and leftist disinformation was considering using his platform to rise to power as the executive of one of the most important cities in the world, if it indeed still is that. Governor Cuomo is now begging for wealthy New Yorkers to return home after five months of realizing that life is better everywhere else. Professors disseminated advice from their verified accounts on Twitter about how to pull down the Washington Monument. Childless white women and spoiled hipster dorks and adult men in tutus spent their evenings insulting black policemen and women doing their duty at the very peaceful protests. The media reported that the violence amidst the mostly peaceful protests was being caused by white supremacists. Even the ridiculously corrupt Southern Poverty Law Center said there was no evidence for this, though it's possible there remains scant evidence for this. Facebook employees staged a walkout to protest Mark Zuckerberg refusing to take down Donald Trump's posts. Relatively nonviolent protesters attacked the CNN building in Atlanta. CNN simply isn't woke enough. Warren Wilhelm Jr., also known as bill de Blasio beamed with pride after his daughter, Chiara was arrested for very peacefully protesting, also known as standing in the street, blocking traffic. The face she made when her mugshot was taken shows how seriously she took her offense. Apparently the justice system is not racist in cases involving the entitled deranged children of entitled deranged mayors. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported that a 189-unit affordable housing development was burned to the ground. Minneapolis's third precinct was looted and burned to the ground. El Nuevo Rodeo, the club that employed Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, burned to the ground. Derek Chauvin's police station and the venue where both he and Floyd worked burned to the ground what a remarkable turn of events. Scientific American published a piece on how globe-trotting humans spread the virus as a result of travel from China. I theorized this months earlier. It was obvious from looking at the spread. People who construct our accepted narrative and find racism in everything because they're so not possibly racist, also found the possibility of racism in blaming travel from China, that this could mean Trump's travel ban from China for non-Americans and then from Europe would therefore have been wise was too much for them to bear. On June 2nd, USA Today published an article calling the extraordinary number of nursing home deaths a national disgrace. Meanwhile, the nation exploded over a white woman calling the police and telling them she was being threatened by a black man in Central Park. The Telegraph UK noted that disgraced fool Neil Ferguson, author of the Imperial College London model that shut down the world, admitted that Sweden used the same model that the UK used his model to make its choices. Sweden did not lock down. Sweden's Andres Tegnell did not take Ferguson's word as scripture. Anthony Fauci did. No one in American media bothered wrestling with the fact that the science could yield multiple conclusions and that one of them was the correct conclusion. That conclusion was not the one they'd spent months promoting. Protesters began forcing white Americans and police officers to supplicate before them, lowering themselves to their knees and begging not to be called racist by people who call everything racist. The same day, doctors in Italy declared that the coronavirus no longer existed there. It had simply disappeared. That is, after all, what viruses do. Donald Trump is mocked daily for saying that viruses do this. Every time he makes a statement along these lines, he's accused of not taking the virus seriously. What could that even mean? If Trump is as obsessed with his self-image as people believe, why would he think he could create the reputation he wants by screwing up the most pressing issue of our time? These narratives break down internally. They're functionally impossible to believe without the premises on which they're founded being in direct opposition. After a freakout over a viral video of a pool party at the Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri's health director declared they had found no new cases as a result of the extremely undistanced event. How'd that happen? The New York Times published and then retracted an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton, the man they'd previously slandered as a conspiracy theorist, in which Cotton argued for the authority of the government to use the military should it become necessary to quell the riots. Times blogger and all-around despicable person Taylor Lorenz and her woke blogger colleagues declared to the world that, quote, running this puts black New York Times staff in danger, unquote. The wording of the tweet was clear, invoking a dangerous workplace forces the organization to act to maintain employee safety or face legal or PR consequences. The paper said that James Bennett, editor of the opinion section, failed to properly review and fact check the opinion piece. Bennett was removed from his position as if the problem with the piece was that Cotton had his facts wrong. Cotton's op-ed exists behind their paywall, and they have disavowed an opinion piece that most of the country agrees with because the bloggers whined that talking about the military dealing with riots puts disproportionately more black protesters in danger, and therefore the black New York Times employees We're in danger as well in the office. People started realizing that Robin DiAngelo, the corporate consultant who scribbled out the Mein Kampf of wokeness, white fragility, was herself white. She is still paid $6,000 per hour to teach people how to properly shame themselves for being born white by establishing a new white identity, one focused on race. Woke influencers on Twitter and in the crowds of communists in the streets demanded the police be defunded in service of saving black lives. As of the end of July, eight black Americans have been killed in 2020 by police. The deaths of eight young black men is a standard Saturday afternoon in Chicago. New York Times historical fiction writer Nicole Hannah-Jones, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project, declared that riots and looting do not constitute violence, but disagreeing with the Black Lives Matter narrative does. She spent the end of July backtracking on the historical accuracy of her work, saying that it was never intended to be, quote, the narrative of history, just a narrative. She still thinks it should be taught to children in schools, even though its description of history is completely wrong and does nothing but perpetuate a false narrative that furthers racial division. The New England Journal of Medicine followed the Lancet's lead and retracted their own published study claiming hydroxychloroquine was dangerous. Like the Lancet, their data was also totally bogus. The study's authors hadn't even seen the data. George Floyd's attorney, who is also handling the Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery cases, I guess he has a niche, began paying to promote his Twitter feed, presumably to influence public opinion and promote his own business. Very woke. The New York Post reported that New York's chief of police, Terrence Monahan said the bulk of arrests made during the riots and looting were of criminals who'd just been put back on the streets because of New York's bail reform laws. He also mentioned that of the 650 arrests made in New York that weekend, almost all will be immediately released with no bail. But that's okay because we all know that prisons should be abolished. The New York Times published an opinion piece about how people should cut off their relationships with family and friends if they chose not to commit to protesting or to giving money to Black Lives Matter or other organizations. That's how cults start. No, that's literally how cults start. In Europe, reopenings occurred without the feared COVID spikes expected by the media In the UK, 27 police officers were injured in a largely affectionate protest. Brian Stelter tweeted out a Washington Post op-ed claiming that journalists should have a political agenda, but just shouldn't work for campaigns. One of the country's primary news sources publicly agreed that political agendas should shape the news and no one really cared. If you're one of them thinking, yeah, They do have to work for social justice when they're creating the news. You should understand the reason why it's because you don't believe your ideas could ever be wrong. There is no democratic experiment and certainly not this one that could survive thinking that there would one day be cohesion around all ideas. And this would be a peaceful utopia. No, if that state of being were possible, it would only be so by force. I know this is the mindset because I used to be progressive. I believed that there would be a right answer and everyone would eventually come to agree. The rest would be left behind. This framing seemed moral. It seemed reasonable. It is not. This is one of the most crucial things to understand about progressivism. Everyone who doesn't agree with me will be left behind. Isn't utopia. It's Nazi Germany it's Stalin's Russia, it's Mao's China, it's Orwell's 1984. We need to understand that this is the literal end of the political compass. People will excuse this and point to this or that policy and say, ah, it isn't that extreme. Forget that explanation. Extreme things that come all at once do not last. Extreme things that happen over time come as the result of a million little signals you didn't pay attention to because you thought they weren't extreme. Think about any of your past traumatic experiences or relationships, the ones that developed over time and then destroyed you. That's what it means to excuse the constant erosion of freedom as not extreme. This thinking is not only unrooted, it's barely theoretic. The only operative part of excusing the constant erosion of freedom is that you believed whoever it is you go to when you want new things to believe. This is the end of part one. Please join me for part two. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh